funerals. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. How are you on this beautiful Sunday afternoon? Stay with me for the next couple hours as we are going to talk about, oh, we have so much in the show today. From weddings, did you see the royal wedding? To personality types, do you want to know who you're compatible with? Um, And hey, in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to do my classic segment, Should I Stay or Should I Go? If you're in a relationship where you're like, yeah. Is it a good enough relationship? Is it a toxic relationship? Are there more warm fuzzies than cold pricklies? Maybe you're just not sure. Maybe you're on the fence. Then you can give me a call. We'll be taking your calls around 520. And uh, let me weigh in. Should you stay or should you go? But before we talk about breakups or not, can we talk about weddings? Did you wake up? I did. Joey, did you get up? For the wedding? Uh, I, I saw some of the wedding. I didn't get up for it, but oh, it happened to be on TV. Yeah, stop it. You're not a girl. That's <laughs> why. Uh, I stayed up very late Friday night. I make this little drink now because, you know, I'm uh, low carb, right? So um, I make this little drink. Apparently, tequila has no carbs. I don't know. If, if that is not true, do not email me. I do not want to know the truth. Um, but my cardiologist tells me that a glass of wine even though on the internet it says it has three or four grams of carbs, that if you're in the low-carb life, you should count it as 10 grams of carbs because of some way that your liver processes it. I don't know. It sounded too scientific for me, and I just went, oh, that's sad that wine is a glass of sugar. But anyway, I make this tequila with a little soda water and a fresh lime and some mint. It's like a Mexican mojito, right? (laughs) And um, I was sipping it. And I stayed up watching my friend Don Lemon on CNN with his beautiful bow tie over there at the wedding. And I felt sad for him because I was calculating the time and it was very late. But I did not make it all the way. I made it for a while, but the actual wedding started at 4 a.m. So I fell asleep, my tequila and I. And then I woke up at like 6 and turned it on and got the rest of it. Now, why do we care? Why would I go on less sleep with a tequila headache? to watch this royal wedding and get the sound bites. Not just because it's newsworthy. Here we have a biracial bride who's not of royal blood, who is from Los Angeles, marrying into the royal family. But there's more than that. And I will talk more about the history and the changes of the royal family and how really they're an indicator of how the world is becoming more progressive in our understanding of human relations. But... There's something about a wedding. At this time in America, where we have fewer married adults than married adults, where the divorce rate is high, I should remind you, though, that if you got married in the year 1900, the average length of your marriage when you professed till death do us part was about 12 years. But people died from accidents, from war, from, you know, uh, Bad medicine, no medicine, (laughs) sickness. Um, And if you got married in 1990 and you professed till death do us part, the average marriage still lasted about 12 years. The difference is we are separating because of divorce, not because of death. And so why do we have this notion that we should be married for life? And why do we have these huge public displays of commitment I mean, I know it's dragging on to the past. And there's the bride, the 36-year-old divorced woman in a white dress that used to signify virginity. I would put a lot of money on the fact that she's not a virgin. Um, Why do we do it? Because there is this romantic feeling. There is this sense of hope. And if there is nothing else that human beings hold dear to their heart, it is a sense of hope. And... Why not champion the moments of happiness, the moments of joy? And for you naysayers out there going, oh, it's not going to last, or it's not real, or it's an arrangement, or whatever, whatever. I don't want to hear it. I want to, on that day, look at that wedding. And I cry at every wedding. I cried at this one. It was the gospel choir that got to me, actually. Um, And I, I just felt like, let's just celebrate a couple. And let's celebrate their hope. 
and whether they get divorced or not. You know, also this week, I was out to dinner with a group of friends, one being a psychiatrist from Miami with a bunch of psychiatrist friends. Really interesting to see psychiatrists out to dinner together. Really interesting group. And they all had a different specialty. Like one was addiction. One does public speaking on something. I must contact them to find out. The other specializes in trans adolescence. Uh, one specializes in happiness. Literally, how to have more happiness in your life. Positive psychology. And um, anyway, one of them said the words, well, it's probably because, or one of the reasons why so many, there are so many failed relationships today. And I just, whoa, 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 stop the train. Forget about failed relationships. We need to reframe this. So when is duration the only litmus test for relationship success? You know, I always say a relationship is over when the partners have stopped learning, right? When people have stopped growing, when maybe they become so fused and inbred that the individual is lost, or maybe they become so separate that they forgot how to collaborate and be interdependent. So I looked at that royal wedding, and I don't give a hoot if it lasts one year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Uh, it'd be great if it lasted long enough for the nest to stay intact for the babies. You know, I'm all about the babies and what the safe, the safe nest for the babies are. And until we have a more socialist society, <laughs> until we reflect something like Northern Europe, still in America, the best deal we have for kids is two people living in a house who have a vested interest in the offspring of that union who are growing up, whether that offspring are biological or adopted or steps or whatever, but two people bringing two sets of income, two sets of heart and love, that's the best deal we have for kids. So that's as long as I want these two to stay together. So why is this royal wedding, though, more meaningful to the world and the globe? What was it about this wedding that made us transfixed? Well, it showed a major shift in the value system of the royal family. I mean, listen, I'm from the Commonwealth, all right? I grew up in Canada, and we all sang God Save the Queen in the morning when I was a child. Uh, yeah, I know. I had to learn how to sing the American National Anthem when I moved here. Um, and by the way, I like to tell people, when I became an American in 2008, and I had to go to the convention center, George Bush was up there on a big screen, and I had to put my hand over my heart, and there was a gospel singer belting out tunes. Um, I felt more American, I think, than many people that are just born into it because I had to work hard, take a test, go up there and pledge my allegiance to the flag uh, of the United States of America and to the Republic for which... Okay, enough. All right, let's talk about England and what they've been doing here. Now, if you remember, you must be really old if you're going to remember this, King Edward VIII actually abdicated from the crown in 1936. He became king and then he went, oops, I'd like to marry a twice-divorced American named Wallace Simpson, who if you read deep on the internet, you'll hear that Mrs. Wallace Simpson had some certain techniques in the bedroom that she learned in China with her first husband. I don't know if it's true. I'm just saying. Is that enough for a man to leave the throne? Perhaps. Uh, king Edward was only five foot seven notoriously small in many other areas too just going to say that but she made him feel like a king in another way who needed the throne right um then so prince charles harry's father harry who just got married staying with me princess diana's uh uh princess prince charles was princess diana's wife husband there we go uh he uh he ended up marrying princess diana for one specific reason he looked long and wide in the land to find this particular woman, and she was very difficult to find. I'll tell you what Princess Diana was when he found her. When we come back, you're listening to The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Layer Perel, do you have the news for us? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. We're talking about the royal weddings. Now, remember that the royal family is largely ceremonial at this point. In fact, when I spent the summer in London a couple of years ago, you know, the queen leaves and goes up to Scotland to Balmoral Castle and Buckingham Palace, they roll up all the carpets and tourists just trot on through. 
They get to go everywhere except the royal bedrooms because they're making money to continue to pay for, I mean, just keep the lights on, right? <laughs> they have so many, they are castle rich and they are cash poor. Um, but they are still, just as some would say, that our president in America is the cultural um, barometer uh, example of who we are and where we're going. Um, definitely the royal family is, um, is, is the same thing in Great Britain and indeed the colonies, if you'll still call them that. And um, they've gone through a lot of change. As I mentioned, back in 1936, King Edward VIII completely abdicated the throne because there was no way that he was allowed to marry a divorced American. Then his own father, or no, sorry, nephew, Prince Charles, when he became king, of course, he needed to find, he was almost a middle-aged man uh, when he married Diana, who became princess. And um, he needed to find something very specific in order for him to have a royal wedding. Now, if you remember, he was already in love with Camilla Parker Bowles. He'd been with her forever, but she wasn't royal blood. And although she was love, he was not allowed to marry her. The other problem was she was also divorced, and therefore she was not, da-da-da-da, a virgin. So Prince Charles had to look far and wide to find a virgin in, when was it, 1980 when they got married? And uh, found this 19-year-old nanny, barely related to the royal family, fifth cousin once removed, but supposedly a virgin. So he goes through what I would call the sham wedding. If you've read enough on their marriage, and Diana has said it in her own interviews with the BBC, um, there were three people in her marriage. Camilla Parker Bowles, her husband's lover, and Diana. But Diana had to make an heir and a spare. An heir and a spare. And she did. William and Harry. Of course, they divorced. And now you're going to get my personal opinion injected into this because I follow this stuff. The queen hadn't been progressive enough at that point and uh, did not give her the royal security that she needed. And therefore, she died in a Paris tunnel car accident with her, the man she was dating, Dodi Fayed. And with a drunk driver. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, and those two poor boys left without a mother. All right, so William, the heir, who will be king, um, married middle-class Kate. Big movement forward. Big movement. Middle class. And on Saturday, his little brother Harry, who's like fifth in line to the throne, no, no big deal, he married a descendant of slaves, a divorced biracial American girl from Los Angeles sending who is a self-described feminist sending to the world a message that the royal family has changed I have with me now Robert Kovacic from KNBC News hi Robert are you still over there at the wedding oh we're going to talk to Robert when we come back okay sorry have to wrap you up yet Robert but I know he's over there at the wedding um I want to just close by saying one thing that Megan's mom was her only family member there at the wedding. That today families have so much drama. There's so much dysfunctional. I mean, supposedly her dad, who had gone bankrupt and had another step family and lives in uh, Mexico and had sold some pictures of him prepping for the wedding to paparazzis, to tabloids. And so the royal family got wind of that and nixed that one, if you believe the news. And so her mom was the only one who came. She did not walk her up the aisle. She walked herself up the aisle, you good feminist. And then about halfway along, she met Prince Charles, Harry's father, who continued walking her the rest of the way. All right, when we come back, we will have Robert Kovacic, who's been at the wedding. And then let's talk about your personality, shall we? This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. Uh, before I wrap up the royal wedding talk, I need to talk to my Robert Kovacic from KNBC. <laughs> Are you tired or what? 
I'm pretty much delirious, but talking to you yeah. makes me feel much better. How are you doing? So you posted on Facebook when Robert, when Harry met Robert. <laughs> it was a very cute headline. That was not me. That was that was an NBC4 headline. They came up with it, but uh, <laughs> we did meet nonetheless, and, and it was pretty cool. So what was the most surprising thing, first of all, overall about the wedding to you? For me, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that the most surprising thing was the way Windsor and every person we met sort of embraced the idea that this was a woman from Hollywood and from Southern California, and it was so unconventional and it was so modern that people thought this was just a fantastic thing, that they were as excited about it here across the pond as we were in Southern California. And do you think and there's a chance? And that to me was pretty cool. Do you think there's a chance this couple's going to have a residence in L.A.? I, you know, listen, I think the reason why, if, if you tune into NBC4 tonight at 11, there's two different examples. When I yelled at Harry and said, Prince Harry, I'm from Los Angeles, and he ran over, you know, the sort of, you know, happy, happy wife, happy life scenario. Uh-huh. He came right over and maybe was like, oh, I better go over and say hi. Well, there's also a woman from Burbank who said the exact same thing to him, and he reached out, and he immediately was drawn to her. So maybe Harry sort of, you know, we know he likes Southern California. We certainly know he likes Las Vegas. And maybe there's... (laughs) Don't mention those hot tub pictures. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, I think that, you know, he, you know, I think it's, they get it. They, I think they get it. So uh, I get it means will they have a house here? The thing is, he's fifth in line I for the throne. Well, I think they were going to have a they'll have a presence. I believe they will have a presence. Yeah, we're going to have our little royalty here and our black duchess. Um, I think living part part of the time in California. Of course, they're they're worldwide. The humanitarian work that they do. But and my you know what prediction else is, cool, is Wendy? they'll have a house. Yes. Yes. Go ahead. No, go ahead. What your prediction is? They'll have a house. What else is cool is that you know you, you read the British tabloids are are they're harsh. The, yeah. You know they they are they, they take no prisoners, and they have fawned all over Meghan. And today, their new moniker for her mother is Adoria. They all adore Doria. Well, they think that she is just fantastic. So it's clear that's really where she got her beauty that. for from. That's for sure. And yeah. how fascinating and wonderful for the world to see this example of an amazing single mother who's highly educated as a social worker and a yoga teacher and spiritual and everything else, and the classy lady that she is, um, and the descendant of slaves who the British monarchy once, you know, helped the slave industry, began the slave industry. So uh, I just think it's just a beautiful way for us to come back, back round and what the was, gospel choir and, and what all. Was in, what was interesting is that the, the, the sentiment, the popular push, was that after Tom Markle was, had dropped out, was that everyone we had talked to, uh, that was a native here was just like, we, the mom should do it. The mom should do it. I could, you know, can the royals handle it? They're like, well, the old royals probably not, but the young royals can't. Yeah. And the belief here is that it was Doria's decision, because the decision did come down after she arrived in Kensington Palace, that she did not want to do it and that she didn't want the spotlight and she did not think it was appropriate. And the reports are that, you know, she also encouraged to have Prince Charles do it. And and that went, I think, very far with the people here yeah. that, you know, beautiful. she didn't want to steal the show. She didn't want to have that that moment. And and I think that that resonated far beyond what we understand back in the United States of, of what that meant. Robert Kovacic, when you get coming home tomorrow? I am going to actually go to Scotland to see my niece, ah, who I'm very proud of. You made a little pleasure out of your University business of trip. Edinburgh. Wonderful. <laughs> well, we'll see you back in. We'll see you back in LA soon. Thank you so much. Go get some sleep. I know you're tired. And Wendy, I just will tell you that you know the idea here is that I'm I'm standing outside on this beautiful night and it's it's very quiet. Everybody's gone home, but I am looking at not only the Union Jacks but a bunch of American flags around. So that's pretty cool to see. Wonderful, wonderful. Have a nice yeah. evening. Thanks for being here. Take care. All right, all right. Thank you to Robert. Let's close up royal wedding. We got through it. It was great. Thank you. All right. Can we talk about our personality? I teach developmental psychology at Cal State Channel Islands. And one of the things we talk about 
is personality theory. What is our personality really? And how stable is it? I will tell you one thing, that so much of how we react or how we behave in certain situations is really situational. I mean, you would like to think, perhaps, that you would do everything within your power morally to save a drowning baby, and you also think that you would never, ever murder somebody. But depending on the situation, (laughs) if there were 10 drowning babies and you could only get to two, or if uh, you were alone on a desert island and the meanest, cantankerous person was killing off the other survivors one by one and you knew that your only way to survive would be to kill him or her, then you would become a murderer. I mean, so much of who we are is situational. But there are certain things about our personality that tend to be a little more stable. And so I noticed recently that people put in their dating profiles their Myers-Briggs personality. Now, if you don't know what the Myers-Briggs test is, it's, first of all, a famous tool that was developed by um, Catherine Cook Briggs and her daughter Isabel Briggs Myers. And in 1943... The mom was a Jungian, inspired by Carl Jung, and uh, she was first trying to find her daughter's future husband. So the test was used originally for romantic compatibility. Of course, it's gone on, people trying to understand themselves better, um, to be used every way possible um, by many, many companies to decide personality types, to hire um, People use it for self-development. They use it in their professional and their personal life. And basically, there are 16 different categories of uh, personalities. And when we come back, I'm going to talk about a few of them and talk about which ones are more compatible with each other. We're also going to put the test up on our KFI page for you. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel's got the news for us. Oh, help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart. KFI AM 640, Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. We're talking about Myers-Briggs personality types. Developed in 1943. um, Been used widely Uh, And it's very simple. In fact, if you want to take the Myers-Briggs test, we have a free version that we've posted on. Where is it posted? It's on our official Facebook page, Dr. Wendy Walsh. Dr. Wendy Walsh on Mm -hmm. Facebook. DR, just DR, right? That's right. Uh Uh, And what you can do is take the test, find out your dominant personality traits, and then, Joey, did you put the romantic chart, the romantic compatibility chart? Yes, I did. Well... This is a chart I think I'm just going to carry with me everywhere. It's fascinating. So I took the test, and uh, just to tell you how accurate it is, first of all, let me explain what Myers-Briggs is. It's basically four categories, key dimensions, as they call them, used to categorize people. Uh, And it's either sort of a yin or yang, one or the other, introversion versus extroversion, or sensing versus intuition, thinking versus feeling and judging versus perceiving judging doesn't mean criticizing judgment it means like organizational rather than just sort of intuitive gut feeling knowing you know uh so here's where i fell in i fell in what's called an e n f j which stands for not surprisingly extroverted intuitive feeling and judging and this, perna- this personality type is called a protagonist. Listen to the description. You tell me. Is this me? Protagonists are natural-born leaders full of passion and charisma. They form only 2% of the population. I'm kind of unique. Um, they are often politicians. Ooh, maybe I'm ready to run. Uh, coaches, teachers. They reach out and inspire others to achieve and do good in the world. Yes, protagonists have a natural confidence. Uh, They take a great deal of pride and joy in guiding others to work together to improve themselves and their community. Well, if that's not me, I don't know what is. Um, We are strong personalities, but we radiate authenticity, concern, altruism, and we are unafraid to stand up and speak 
when we feel something needs to be said. Sounds a little familiar. I know. I Just a little bit. That's wild. Okay, so Joey, did you yes, take the test? I did, and I actually I wanted to see if you could uh, use your analytical prowess and okay. uh, maybe guess. Uh, I'm going to go with in, introvert shot. over extrovert. You got an I first? I. I am an okay. I. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, I am going to go with intuitive over senses, sensor, or did so, you get an S? No, I'm an N. You're, you're an N. Yeah. There you go. So that's intuitive, right? I got two for two. Great. Here we go. Okay. And let's see. Thinker or feeler. I'd go with thinker. Did you end up with an F? You feel I it? I did somehow. I don't get it. Good. Because... That means you make decisions with your heart. That is. You. <laughs> and you're interested in how a decision will affect people. And I'll tell you okay. that I was being gender biased there because I... Uh, assume men tend to be more thinkers than feelers, and that was wrong and sexist of me, so I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the last, uh, judges or perceivers, I think you got a P, perceivers. I did, absolutely yeah. correct. Great job. <laughs> now I have a scarier question here. Okay, Who so are you most compatible that's with? That's what I was going to ask Okay, so you. what did you say? You uh, e- I-N-F-P. I'm I-N-F-P. I-N-F-P. Your sweet spot. Yeah? Tell me. Uh-oh. What? Uh-oh. Is that really it? Well. Oh. No, no, yes. no, no. Yes. Are you serious? ENFJ. Really? Me. Well. No, but hey, Joey, hey. we have a little generational problem here. Oh, come on. Because you're like a really young millennial, oh, and I'm, I'm not, not. I'm not a really young. Well, you look that way to me. Oh, well, thank you. Okay, you're I like guess. somebody's son to me. I am someone's son. <laughs> but apparently we're a really good match. <laughs> well, I And like, more. okay, so basically the chart that we've posted on my Facebook page, mm-hmm. uh, at Dr. Wendy Walsh, just Dr. Wendy Walsh on Facebook, um, there's like a red zone that you just don't even want to go near anybody in that red zone. Then there's yellow, like it could work, but not ideal. Then there's light green. That's a one-sided match. You know, that unrequited love where you're perfect for the person, but they don't know it. And then green, which is great. It's got a really good chance. But then at the top of the top, and there's very few of these squares, is blue listed as the ideal match. And that's, <laughs> that's what we got together? We will probably work together oh for my a very goodness, long Dr. time, Wendy. Joey. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take <laughs> but I do notice that people are putting these on their dating profiles. Oh, yeah. Because it makes for a lot of fun, right? Well, yeah, but, well, I'm curious, though. So, so there are evidently some kind of red flags like right away on these dating profiles, right? That you can get from these kind of personality, uh, yes. you know, tests. So, I'll tell you the biggest red flag that I see any gender put, but it's more often put by men, mm. are the words "drama free." Okay, <laughs> either they say they're looking for someone who is drama free, or they would like a relationship that is drama free. And when I see that. What I hear is somebody who is either so avoidant, is conflict avoidant, either so passive or so confused about the emotional world of life and doesn't have social sensitivity or emotional intelligence. And so they just think that the drama is something that comes from the outside, that somehow they're not a partner in the drama. It is something that just shows up and they don't want it to come along with whatever relationship they engage in. But drama is what life is. Intimacy is a road of rupture followed by repair. And it is in those moments of repair where people become vulnerable, where someone says they're sorry, where you understand your partner's tender spots. This is the glue of any relationship. So if you want drama-free, you're going to have no loyalty, no commitment, no passion. You're going to have what? Sex, maybe, until they leave? I don't know. (laughs) Um, So those words really stick out as words that people should not put in their profiles. And um, I want to wrap up with saying one thing. Gentlemen, They make iPhone 6s and 7s, 7 Pluses especially, with amazing cameras. And it doesn't take much to get good lighting. Just use natural light from a window and stand back from it and put it on a tripod or a desk and take a decent picture of yourself. Women know how to do it. I don't even have to tell you women. I see those profiles and you guys look gorgeous. You're all Instagram ready. Dudes, get it in focus. You can do this. All right, when we come back, we have to change the tone because I want to talk about a very serious subject. And later in the show, if you're in a relationship where you're wondering, should I stay or should I go? Then give me a call. I'll give you a chance to call in. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. 
KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. I'm going to take things down a little bit because I have a very special guest in the studio, Katie Williams. Katie, you are an iHeart employee. I am. That's exciting. You've been in the building longer than I have. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of cool. But we're here on a somber note because I wanted Katie to come and tell her story a little bit and talk about her book because it will lead me into something that I think is very important. And it is how we discuss news events where somebody who is obviously suffering from depression uh, takes their own life, whether that is somebody, uh, a high-profile person or not. And I have been doing a lot of research, Katie, and finding that one of the dangers of reporting these kinds of stories is that it actually increases suicide rates. And I know you're well aware of that. Right. But you have a personal story of loss that you've turned into something very positive that I didn't want to ignore. Thank you. So tell me about your book. I started, so my brother died. He died by suicide at age 17. And a year later, I started journaling just to help myself process and get through it. And I was convinced I would hide this journal under my bed and never show anyone. And about three and a half years after writing, I was encouraged by friends to publish it to help others. And so now that's what I've been doing. I've been sharing the warning signs so that other people can recognize them and save a life and publish this book to show people you're not alone and there's hope and you can get through this just like my family did. And before we talk, and there's lots of good wisdom and you were a really smart 17 year old. I just want to say. Thank you. (laughs) You didn't edit it and like turn it into grown up woman words. I wanted it to be raw, unedited as much as possible to retain the voice of yeah, myself is a, it's a beautiful teenager. book, and I've been reading it bit by bit beside my bed. And before we get into the warning signs, and you're here partly because it is Suicide Awareness Month, and this is the problem, is that we want people to be aware, but we also don't want to at all glamorize this. You know, one of the ways to shape human behavior, one of the best ways to shape human behavior, if you're trying to get them to recycle more or eat healthier, is to create social inclusion. In other words, the stars do it, the cool people do it, people like you do it. But the dark side of that kind of behavior shaping is that when you talk about people who have taken their own lives, you can increase suicide rates. So let's go over some of, I like to call them the rules for media, and this is all research-based. Science has looked at this closely. Um, When the media provide sensational coverage of the suicide, descriptions of the suicide that provide how-tos for people. Not good. We shouldn't do this, of course. Um, And when we speak highly of the person who died, who was released from their pain, another vulnerable person out there might hear that and think, oh, they'll talk nice about me after I'm gone because they're not doing it now, right? Right. It's unfortunate. It is is a hard thing. I mean, use, for example, um, how the New York Times covered the death of Kurt Cobain. They did it the right way. Their headline was Kurt Cobain, hesitant poet of grunge rock, dead at 27. Years later, when news broke of Robin Williams, you couldn't control the Internet. And somebody made a meme uh, depicting Disney's Aladdin character saying, you're free now, genie. And consequently, within the three months period of that meme being created, suicide rates went up by 10%. Yeah, it's not good. After Marilyn Monroe died, they increased by 12%. So celebrity suicides, of course, outsize this effect. So we have to be really careful because there are vulnerable people out there. And the more exposure to media reporting of people taking their own lives, um, the more it goes up. So let's focus on helping. If you're listening, if you have yourself intrusive suicidal thoughts, especially in a period of a few months after the suicide of somebody you admired, like a certain Swedish DJ, um, you need to reach out for help. You need to call a suicide hotline. You need to get to a doctor. You need to let people around you know what you're feeling. So for those of us who are on the outside of that, that's my message to those who are suffering, to those family members and friends, what are the warning signs, Katie? Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to talk about it. I'll just start with the hotline because as you just mentioned, anyone that 
is starting to think about suicide or if you've heard someone say they might take their life, this hotline is not only if you're thinking about suicide, but also if you want to help somebody who you think might be thinking about suicide. And this is the phone number that Logic Song made so popular. It's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-8255. 24-7. It's national, so they can direct you to local resources. 273-8255. That's right. And yeah, just as far as warning signs, it's it's ironic almost. So my brother used to say, well, I'll just kill myself, you know, and I never took him seriously because I thought... Because it sounded like a throwaway line, right? Right. And I thought, oh, you're you're young. You know, it's just, he was 17. I thought, you're just having a moment right now. You're upset about something. It's going to go away. You're not going to feel like this tomorrow. Or later today. So one of the top, you know, one of the main things to be aware of is people saying that they're going to take their life, a feeling of being a burden to others, hopelessness, feeling cornered, feeling like there's no way out, and then behavior. So that's if they talk about it. And then there's behaviors. There's things like isolating from family and friends, increased use of drug and alcohol, and even things like giving away personal possessions, making phone calls, setting your affairs in order. All of those are warning signs because it's somebody that is really taking their last steps, you know, making those calls and visits to basically say goodbye. One of the most fascinating, one might think counterintuitive um, sign of suicide is a sudden period of happiness after being so depressed and so anxious for so long. And so people think, and you'll hear this all the time from survivors, they'll be like, but I thought they were getting better yep. because they were so happy in the last few weeks. And I mean, that's a hard one to call. It's hard because often and what, you know, what I've learned through now the almost 19 years that my brother has since passed in my volunteering and just even in my research, unfortunately, that that uptick and that mood lift you're talking about often occurs after the person has decided to take their life and they feel relieved. Yep. They get which, this sense of relief like, OK, I figured out how I'm going to solve my problems now. Right. And um, I don't want to discount, you know, by asking you to not talk too much about your brother's situation. I don't want to discount the pain and grief that you went through. And your book journals it in, very, in, a, in a beautiful way. Um, do you wonder sometimes if somebody knew how much it would hurt their family, that it could prevent them? I sometimes think about this tunnel vision. And again, I learned a lot more of this through volunteering and working with other families who lost a loved one to suicide. And what I learned is this common thread that I kept hearing from other families. And it's like, this person was very loved and they knew they were so loved, but they got this tunnel vision where the only thing they could see is a way out of their pain. Mm -hmm. You know, I think people, people who will, for example, say something like, Oh, well, I'll just kill myself. No one believes them because they look at them from the outside and they say, but Oh, they're so outgoing and they're so upbeat and they're the life of the party. Why would, or they have children, they never would, or they've had a great life, they never would. When actually statistics tell us that middle age males, white males, are the most, uh, is the demographic that takes their life most often. So we can't take it on the surface. If someone says they're going to kill themselves, that's what we have to take seriously. Exactly. So the book is called Journey of the Heart, a 17-year-old's journal after losing her brother to suicide by Katie Williams. You can find it online. Amazon. It's a good read. And I just want to reiterate, because we have to wrap up, if you're listening and you have any intrusive suicidal thoughts, especially in a period following a public person who has taken their life, someone you admired, I need you to ask for help. I want you to call that suicide hotline. What is the number again? 1-800-273-8255. 273-8255. Call a doctor. Um, tell people around you that you're suffering because we want you here with us. Okay? That's right. Um, and Katie, thank you for coming in. It's thank always you a so pleasure much. to meet people in other parts of the building. That's you're, right. You're upstairs? I'm going to come by your desk and say hi sometime. I'm on your floor, so we'll swing around the corner. Where are you, down there? I'm really close. Yeah, right around the corner. I'm going to go see you all the time. I have a new person to go visiting with. Great. Um, Good to see you. Thank you so much for coming by during this important month, Suicide Awareness Month. Thank you so much. All right. When we come back, are you in a relationship and you're not sure if you should stay or you should go? Then I want you to call me. And the number is 1-800-520-1KFI, 1-800-520-1KFI. One five three four. Should I stay or should I go? Let me weigh in.
You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. Are you in a relationship and wondering if you should stay or you should go? Then give me a call. Let me weigh in at 1-800-520-1534. That's 1-800-520-1KFI. 1-800-520-1534. I noticed the lines lit up and then we didn't get to them quick enough and then they went away. So call me back. 1-800-520-1534. So while I'm waiting for you to call me back, let me talk a little bit about relationships and why some work and some don't. And you would like to think that there could be the perfect compatibility app out there, this perfect piece of science that could put the jigsaw puzzle pieces together and say, aha, you two should be together forever and be (laughs) drama-free. Unfortunately, Real life is a little bit different because we all have a certain biological predisposition. We have a psychological way about us and we live in a specific social world. Generally, when people make lists of who would be a most compatible mate, they start out with the social piece. They make the pros and cons list. You know, the list that says, well, they have to be tall or have a certain kind of job or make a certain amount of money, or she's got to be this kind of person, or he's got to be that kind of person. Their their politics have to be one thing. They need to eat the way I do, whether it be paleo, vegan, vegetarian, junk food, whatever. Um, And we make these lists. Well, that is sociology, right? That is basically that you can live together in the same neighborhood. It doesn't mean that you will have sexual passion. It doesn't mean that you will have commitment to each other, that you'll be loyal. Um, it, it just means that you could kind of be in the same neighborhood, right? Um, but I look deeper. And when I look at psychology, I look at somebody's attachment style. Because what is a relationship? It is an exchange of care. And those that have the most secure attachment style are those who can give care and receive care comfortably. Um, and as you know, there are some people who can give a lot of care and they can't take it. They're not comfortable taking it. And others, the other way around. Um, and then there's the biological piece, basic pheromones. I mean, I told you I do some work with a company called instantchemistry.com and they have a DNA test that you can take. You can spit into a test tube and send it off to Toronto and they'll send you back a big thick book that tells you all about whether you will be compatible and have Hotter sex and for longer than most couples because it's indicative of immune system compatibility. The more different or disparate your immune systems are, the better someone will smell and the better the sex will be with them. I'm not joking. This is, this is a thing. So what happens is when you mate with somebody, you might take long legs from one, brown eyes from another, red hair from another, except immune systems. Immune systems combine and create a stronger person. Okay, we got a bunch of calls now on our Should I Stay or Should I Go segment. Let's go to Al in Temecula. Hi, Al. It's Dr. Wendy. Oh, sorry, Mike. Mike in Rancho Cucamonga. Hi, Mike. It's Dr. Wendy. And then Mike left. They all got scared. What happened? They're up and they're gone. Okay, Al. Al in Temecula. It's Dr. Wendy. Yeah, I guess I'm the only one left, Dr. I know. I see more coming up, but he's trying to pre-interview them and type it in. So, yeah, no, no. He's a very very nice kid. Uh, I just wanted to uh, talk to you about a couple years ago, my wife went. (laughs) I didn't want her to go, but Uh, she ended up going. She divorced. And how long had you been married? 32 years. Wow. Okay, that's a successful marriage. Well, I, I struggled with the failure aspect of it because, you know, I was... I don't know. It, it was very difficult. I'm, I'm going to be seeking uh, therapy coming up here in the next couple of weeks because mm-hmm. my daughters were telling me, Dad, you need to go and talk to somebody. You mm-hmm. know, you're, you're struggling with it and all that sort of stuff. Only, you know, my wife was 10 years younger than me, and she ended up going with somebody that was her own age from, from her own school. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so it was just really well, rough. Okay, but, how but many the, kids did you have? Two daughters. Two daughters. And how old are they now? Uh, 30 and 28. Okay. I want to remind you, I got to help you reframe this. Okay. Cause it sounds like you're okay. stuck in the whole idea of a failed marriage. 
any marriage today that lasts 32 years should have a divorce party that's the, like as big as a wedding because that's a big successful relationship if you're basing it on duration. But then I'm going to add to it, you have two healthy daughters who were, it was a great nest for them, and I assume they're doing okay, right? They're not. Oh, they're not. Is it because of the divorce no, or because of the marriage? Because of the divorce, because of the way it ended with uh, with my wife having an affair with somebody. She, she was seeing somebody, and I found out about it and all yeah. this. It's, it's always messy. I will say this, Al. It is always messy. Uh, we have to go to a break, but I just want to end by saying I know how you feel. This is one of the biggest pains that can ever happen to a human, and I highly endorse the idea that you go to therapy and talk about your feelings because I think there's a great relationship in your future. When we come back, if you have a question about your relationship, should you stay or should you go, call 1-800-520-1KFI. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has got the news for us. Should I stay or should I go now? KFI AM 640. You are listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. We're doing our Should I Stay or Should I Go segment. Teresa, it's Dr. Wendy. Hi. Hi, how are you? Oh, thanks for taking my call. I'm good. I love your show. Oh, thank you. So what's going on with your relationship? Well, I'm trying to figure out where to start because it could take 20 minutes. Uh, um, what can we do in two? <laughs> yeah, so separated from my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, how long were my you married? Children's six years. Six years. And how many kids? We do not have children together. My first husband passed away. This is a second marriage. Um, and how old are those children now? 18 and 16. Okay. So they're um, yeah. almost out of the nest. But this is their stepfather of the last six years. Right. And through, uh, blended families, as you know, can be tough. Oh, and how and, old were his, are his kids? Uh, nine and 15. You had a busy house, four kids there. Yeah. Um, we had some stresses, and he was coping with those stresses by using alcohol mm-hmm. and resulted with some bad behavior, some verbally abusive behavior towards me, and had an altercation with one of my children. Oh. And we separated because I needed to relieve the tension. Mm-hmm. And fast forward now and trying to reconcile if we try to make this work or is it just too much and move on? Well, has he gone to therapy with you? Have you guys talked about this in a professional's office? Uh Uh-huh. And is he continuing to go to therapy? Yes. And what's going on there? Are you feeling more hopeful? Um, I was, but my children now hate him. Mm-hmm. It's very. And you're a mom. I know yeah. you can. It's very understand. difficult. I always say, if yeah. you're on a sinking ship and there's one lifeboat, even if that dude is the father of your kids, you're going in with your kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because that's basic human survival. But having said that, is he? I mean, it sounds like bringing this isn't just about your relationship with him. It's about healing, no. healing the whole family. Correct. And Correct. is he willing and able to do that work? Uh, it sounds like it, and I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pressure and the like, the psychological pressure on me to, is, make a, to make a decision. Yeah, is a lot. So I heard your show, and I thought, well, I'll give her a call. Well, I'll tell you this: there's no one right way. There's also no right. one time schedule. And mm-hmm. as long as he and you are continuing to go to therapy on a regular basis, the answer will mm-hmm. come to all of you. And mm. you may at some point suggest family therapy where mm-hmm. everyone gets together and talks about this stuff and everybody's allowed to have a voice and express their feelings. Not to say that ultimately it's the parents who need to make this decision and the kids right. should dictate. Uh, but on the other hand... They're human beings who have thoughts mm-hmm. and feelings about this. So mm-hmm. I would talk to your therapist definitely about whether to pursue family therapy. Mm-hmm. And don't feel right. pressured. Don't feel pressured. There's no timeline on this. Absolutely. Well, no that's time. okay. 
So there is a timeline on his side. He, it's been over a year, and he wants an answer. Mm. Mm. Well, and I feel no like answer, maybe I can... no answer is an answer for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, he's got a right to have his boundaries and his rules. Right. And if he's decided I want to move on, if it's been a year, then that's mm-hmm. up to him to do. Mm-hmm. That's his decision right. at that point. You both get to make decisions here, right? You are right. And no answer is an answer. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Mm-hmm. Thank you for calling, Teresa. I hope it goes better. Uh, thank you very much for calling. Carrie in San Juan Capistrano. Hi, Carrie. Hi, how are you? Good. What's going on with your relationship? Well, I was with someone for two and a half years, mm-hmm. and um, he suddenly uh, walked out on us. Um, there was really no prior notice um he was talking to me on a sunday morning and um you know i said to him i said well i feel kind of used well he went off and said well i'm gonna get my freeloading you know what out of here and i said well nobody said that and we were actually talking marriage at one time Mm -hmm. and he said that i was pressuring him or pressure him or whatever and I said no I'm not pressuring you I said but I would have felt more secure if I was married because I'm not going to play house with someone mm-hmm. you know and nothing ever come of it and he basically put all his stuff in plastic bags and never saw him again so you know I I know it's terrible because you were just broken up with And whenever you're the one broken up with, it can involve a lot of pain. And many people, specifically women, want explanations. We want to figure out why, right? Our little brain is trying to figure out Mm -hmm. what went wrong. But Mm -hmm. a guy lives his life by actions. Not every guy, but some guys. And this is one. And -hmm. for him to sit and explain it all to you is not going to work. But basically with action he told you he's not ready to get married and as much as it's something that you know i know there was a part of you that was like well he didn't have to leave maybe we could have resuscitated the relationship and hung in for a bit longer but in some ways he's giving you a gift because he's not able to meet your needs yeah well i never um like pushed him for it or anything but i just told him i said you know if because i I told him, I said, well, I hope you find who you're looking for. And he's like, well, it's not you and we're not compatible. And I'm like, okay, after two and a half years, he's like, well, at least it wasn't five years. And I'm like, well, to me, that's a long time. You know, at my age, that's a long time. It sounds like you wanted the time to process this more and he wouldn't stay in it to process the breakup. And that's the painful thing. But he was very clear with his words that he didn't want to stay in the relationship. And I, you know, I highly suggest that you go talk to someone, work on getting back out there, because there will be somebody for you who is compatible. And you may never know what it was with him or this relationship that didn't work. And you're going to have to make peace with that fact that you may never know. Carrie, I'm sorry you're going through this, and I hope you see better days soon. Thank you so much for calling. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. When we come back, 10 scientifically proven ways to increase your happiness. It'll be easy peasy. Do like half of these things every day and you'll always have a smile on your face. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. Oh, help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. Do you ever have a day where you just feel kind of eh? You know, you wake up and you're like, I'm not totally happy today. Which, by the way, you're not supposed to be totally happy every day, all the time, because what would you have to compare it with, right? Emotions are relative. We are all supposed to have times of uh, great activity and low times and times of joy and times of excitement and times of sadness and times of fear and times of anger. And however, we don't want our emotions to govern our behavior, but we want to be aware of our emotions and welcome and respect all of our emotions. Of course, 
we do want to pursue happiness because it feels the best, right? And there's a lot of scientific research to show that there are some little things that we can be doing to make ourselves feel a little happier. When I teach my health psychology class and we're learning about how to cope with stress, one of the things we look for are the number of stressors compared with the number of daily uplifts. And did you know that the number of daily uplifts is more predictive of better mental health than even how big the stressors are? So little, tiny, good things on a regular basis are exactly what the mind needs. Now, before I go through this list of 10 scientific ways to be happy, and I posted it on my Instagram because I loved it so much, um, I want to say that you can't be happy if your neurochemistry is not being treated well. Remember, the mind informs the body. The body informs the mind. They are not two separate things. You have a squishy bit of biology inside your skull that needs to be fed the right food, that needs to be given, and some of the things I'm going to go about are about your um, things you can do behaviorally to make your biology better. Um, next week, I'm going to have a registered dietitian on because I'm getting into more and more reading into the area, uh, area of psychiatric nutrition. Now we're learning that what we eat feeds our brains in certain ways and can deeply affect our moods. So, without further ado, let me talk about the 10 scientifically proven ways to boost happiness. You know the first one I'm going to mention, we're in California. Meditate. Yes, just make your brain slow down, relax. Don't push the thoughts out, just allow them to flow and watch them. Create a little separation between your busy train of thoughts and you who's relaxed and breathing. Uh, plan a trip but you don't have to take it to get the boost in happiness. This is crazy, I know. So I subscribe to Travel and Leisure magazine. I have the Airbnb app in my phone. I go to Google Flights on a regular basis, and I just think about what if, what week, where would I go? What would I do? And honestly, I can go on a trip in 15 minutes looking at the pictures, and I feel great. I don't even need to spend the money. Actually, it's been proven to be a little uplift. That's why I keep travel and leisure magazines all over my house. Practice gratitude. When you're feeling stressed about something, can you just turn around your room and look at everything there that you're grateful for? Whether it's a certain human being in that room, whether it's the fresh flowers you put there, whether it's something your grandmother left you, whether it's the smell of some delicious food, just be grateful for what is here. Help others. It's been proven. If you help others once or twice a week, do something nice for somebody. It can increase your happiness. And I love this one, practice smiling. Did you know if you force yourself to make a smile, your muscles contract in a way that affect your neurotransmitters and your brain says, oh, I'm smiling, I must be happening. And it's a feedback loop between your muscles and your brain. I'm smiling when I'm saying this. Don't I look happy? Don't I was I wondering if they I... could hear you smiling right They now. can hear me smiling. <laughs> um, spend time with family and friends relationships. Relationships will make you way happier than stuff. Or if you're unhappy because of the freeway, go home and hug somebody. It'll make you feel better. Speaking of freeways, yes, research has shown that people who live closer to their places of work are happier. Yeah, commute time is a killer. No doubt. I know. It is the biggest strain in my life. I will say that. I drive, I'm embarrassed to tell you, some days four to six hours a day with the giant corner of Southern California that I cover on a regular basis. And that is not, sitting is the new smoking, people. That is not good for our health. Um, here's something I do. Go outside. This morning I, I was up on my roof garden watering it. Well, it felt good. Sleep more and exercise. New research shows that good moods are connected with physical activity. And as little as 10 minutes a day of good exercise can boost your mood. I was going to say, this is like a good kind of end of the day checklist. Yes. You know, for if you did, it's on yeah. my Instagram. Go to my Instagram. On Facebook Doctor, too. Oh, you put it on Facebook yep. too? Mm -hmm. Dr. Wendy Walsh, just D-R Wendy Walsh, and print it out, and it's a little chart. And if you could do half of those things every day, you'd be a happy person. That's what I'm saying.
All right, on that note, it is time to go. You will find me every Wednesday here with Gary and Shannon in the 1 o'clock hour. And I'm here every Sunday from 4 to 6. You can also follow me online everywhere at Dr. Wendy Walsh. Thanks so much for being with me today. Have a wonderful week. And who's next? Oh, our fabulous Mo Kelly is next. Of course. Don't go anywhere, okay? He's great. I love him.